Uh, I have to be honest with you. Uh, when I rolled out of bed this morning and looked at my phone, I checked the temperature first thing, and probably like many of you, and I, and I sat there and thought, if I had the choice this morning, if I wasn't preaching, would I go? And um, I'd like to think the answer is yes, but I don't know, because <laughs> I didn't have a choice. I'm here this morning uh, to preach the Word of God, and that is a privilege. And uh, so thank you for the privilege you give me to be able to uh, bring the Word of God to you. And uh, let's go now to the Lord and just ask for his help as we look at it together. Father, one of the things I'm so thankful about um, living in Fairbanks, Alaska, and being able to fellowship at Bethel Church is that while this is the coldest place in the world I can think of, this is the warmest fellowship in the world that I know. And I am very grateful for my friends, for these brothers and sisters in Christ who would uh, confront the obstacles of a cold and dark place to gather together with the body of Christ to worship. Lord, I know you are pleased by the worship of your people in all times and all places. But as I look out this morning and see my friends in the midst of a cold morning, I think you've got to be really pleased. Our being here this morning, Lord, is for you. We praise you. We honor you with our lips, with our love expressed to one another, and by submitting ourselves to your word and to your spirit as you teach us. Help us now, Father. We love you. We worship you. We want to be like your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, if you open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 1, we're picking up in verse 12 this morning, continuing our series that we just started last week, uh, Ecclesiastes, that's just the way it is. And I think that's King Solomon's perspective and conclusion as he kind of looks at life. There's lots of things he, he learns and passes on to us, but one of the, one of the points that I think kind of summarizes the book is is that we have to be honest with life as it is. The way God has made it. Life under the sun. Life on the human plane. And so Ecclesiastes is just an honest look at life as man finds it. And Solomon coaches us on a bit of what to do and what not to do. uh, Some from his own life. Uh, My wife, uh, Amy, is a very creative person. Um, most of the time, I like her creativity. Sometimes it gets a little bit overwhelming. But uh, she's a very creative person, and uh, she kind of picks up um, these new projects from time to time. One of the things that she's learned the past few years that she's really just gone wild with is knitting. Uh, if Amy is sitting down, just about commonly, she's knitting. And if I didn't have a hard time with it, she'd probably knit during the sermons. And I just don't think my ego will take that, so I've asked her not to. But... Um, but she's knitting all the times. In fact, uh, several of the babies in the, in the church, you've already seen a couple this morning, have some little baby hats or baby booties that she's knit, and she passes those out. And we were counting the other day. I think she's made somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 to 40 of those for different babies in the church over the past couple of years. And it's just one of the things she she's does, and she's very, very good at it. Um, she's going to hate the fact that I'm mentioning this, by the way, but 
Oh, well, she's teaching Sunday school right now. Um, one of the other things that, that she's become very good at is making pizzas. And I don't know if, if you have had the chance to be at our house for a pizza party or something like that. She's very good at these. They are awesome. And it's yeah. just been fun. Yeah, it's been fun to just be creative about, you know, what kinds of concoctions we can come up with. And during the summertime, she comes down. Uh, I shouldn't tell you this because you'll all come. But uh, Wednesdays, which is kind of our staff day around here, she'll bring them down and she makes pizzas for the staff. So we just sit together and have pizza together and enjoy each other. And that's just one of those things that she does under the radar just to show love and creativity and use her gifts to benefit the body of Christ. But And she's interested in music and she's helping our kids with the uh, go through Suzuki right now. Uh, Aiden's playing the cello and Eleanor has the world's smallest violin that really just squeaks, but Amy's patient to work with them on this. And, but my wife is a very creative person and so she takes these kind of these projects and, and as she picks up something new, it kind of sets in motion this, um, a series of experiments uh, is what I would like to call it. And her latest one has been uh, how to, to come up with a homemade ginger ale to go with the pizzas. And this has been a fun, a fun uh, experiment in itself. It started with sort of the recipe. How much water, how much ginger, how much sugar, how much yeast. We've added some lemon. And then a little bit of lime, which was a good addition. We took out some of the lemon zest because it just gave it a little bit of bitterness that we didn't like. And so we've been playing with the recipe. And then we've experimented with sort of the fermentation process. So you know, do you ferment it in the bottles? Do you use baker's yeast or this kind of yeast or, or whatever? And, and how much time is the next thing? How much time do you allow it to do its thing? And, you know, and how cold and how warm? And it's just been a, a very fun experiment. Uh, we've enjoyed it. It's brought tears to our eyes because we had too much ginger, you know, in some of the the recipes. And we've blown soda all over the ceiling of of our uh, of our kitchen. And if you see Amy and I running in and out of liquor stores all over time, coming you know all over town and coming out with bottles and things, um, we're not you know making moonshine at home or anything like that. We're making a good ginger ale, and uh, but it's been fun. It's been it's been a fun experimentation process. This section of Ecclesiastes we're introduced to Solomon's uh, experiments as he considers his question that we looked at last week. Uh, in, in chapter 1, verse 3, what does man gain from all of his labor at which he toils under the sun? And so he sets in motion a series of experiments to try to figure that out. How can we come up with some gain, some profit, something that will register on the balance sheet, something left over? How, how can we approach life to, to come up with this? What life ingredients... Uh, and what process of living guarantees this good and lasting outcome? And so Solomon throws himself at this experiment and begins to try some different things. And experiment number one is wisdom. But what we find is that wisdom won't produce a profit. It won't give him that gain. It won't give him that lasting value that I think he kind of hopes to find from it. Look at verse 12. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem, I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on man. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. Again, that word is uh, hevel. The, the Hebrew word there is, uh, I've asked you to consider more, not so much meaningless, but vaporous, empty, transitory, elusive. 
Uh, Eugene Peterson's translation in, in the message is smoke. I think meaningless isn't the best translation of it. But uh, all of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. And the more knowledge, the more grief. So ultimately wisdom has disappointed him as it fits within his scheme or his experimentation process. Uh, I think also, I just got to point this out, I think verse 12 is sort of further confirmation that Solomon is the author of this book. And I don't want to pass over this verse without bringing that forward here. Um, he says, I was king over Israel in Jerusalem. And that kind of gives us the timeline to, to look at this. And, and, and the reason I think this really points to Solomon as the king is because really, the, let me show you this on a, on a picture here. After Solomon, when his son took over the kingdom, uh, the nation split into northern and southern regions. And so here, if you squint it down, you can see uh, oh, I think actually Andrew helped me with this. You can see um, this northern region here. You can see this this color. This is Israel. And then we see the southern region here, Judah. And notice where Jerusalem is. It's just inside the southern region here of Judah. And so when he says that I, I was king over Israel in Jerusalem, it indicates that this must have been before the nation split, so that means only he and King David could have claimed this. But he also claims to be son of David, as we saw last week. And so I think all that information really pinpoints it down to tell us that Solomon uh, is the author of this book. So just have to uh, bring that forward here. And I don't think his point is so much to identify himself as the author, but rather he wants to show us his his credentials uh, here in this sort of this experimentation process. I'm qualified to conduct this experiment. He tells us that I was king, and he also tells us that he was the preacher. In other words, as the king, he has the authority and the resource and the freedom to go at this and pursue this quest uninhibited. He doesn't have to lobby for you know, uh, permits, doesn't have to lobby for funding or go through any process. He has the ability to do this. And then as the preacher, as one who gathers to instruct, he has the position to, to teach others and to let us know about his finding. And so he, he kind of tells us that he is qualified to conduct these experiments. Wisdom seems like a noble pursuit, doesn't it? That's a, it's a good word. That's a good idea. That's a noble thing. Uh, and it, it seems very natural for Solomon. We're told in 1 Kings 3 that when Solomon succeeded his father David as king of Israel, that the Lord appeared to him. And uh, in, in 1 Kings 3, 5, if you want to look up this encounter, it says that Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God, asked, or God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. What would your reply be to that? If I'm honest, I think my answer would be, can I have some more wishes first, rather than just one? It's um, the way my mind thinks. And Solomon's request was not for that. He asked that God would give him discernment. 
wisdom and discernment to govern his people because he was overwhelmed by the task that God had given him as king and he wanted to be a good king who governed well. And we're told that God was so pleased with his request that he granted him not only wisdom and discernment as he had asked, but then he granted him uh, riches and honor and a long life. Um, And so it seems like Solomon's first experiment of, okay, how do I figure out how to get some gain in life and have a profitable, lasting life? If that's that's the agenda, and how, how can I figure that out? Maybe wisdom is the way to go about it. That seems really natural and understandable and good. But what we're told here is that ultimately it did not give him that sense of gain. It did not profit him. It did not put him ahead. In fact, we're told that it brought him a burden. It brought him a burden. And I feel, I I find this confusing, to be really honest with you. Because as I, I look at Solomon elsewhere in Scripture, Uh, he makes the statement in Proverbs 8, a proverb attributed to him, where in this chapter of Proverbs 8, he's extolling the virtues of wisdom, and he's he's kind of teaching it as uh, what we call personification, where wisdom is given sort of a voice and a whole persona. And he says this in Proverbs 8.35, For whoever finds me, speaking of wisdom, finds life and receives favor from the Lord. Those are Solomon's words in Proverbs. How do we reconcile all this? In 1 Kings, we're told Solomon had wisdom from God, not just man's wisdom, but wisdom from God. In Proverbs 8, he extols the virtue of it and implores us to pursue it and to obtain it because it's of value. And then in Ecclesiastes, he tells us that wisdom is habel that it's vaporous, fleeting, empty, or as the NIV translates it, meaningless, chasing after the wind. Um, How do we reconcile all of that from one person? Did he change his mind in life? Is that what happened? I think rather what he found is that wisdom will guide us through life. Wisdom will guide us through life, but it will not guarantee us a gain or a profit or something necessarily of lasting value. Wisdom will not achieve that. And that's just the way it is. Um, And there's an aspect of this that really resonates with me, particularly sort of this sorrow and this burden uh, of wisdom. I don't claim to be the wisest person, and I'm certainly no king, uh, but I am a preacher. And um, I do spend a lot of time in God's Word, and I spend a lot of time with you all and listening to your lives and your stories. And oftentimes when someone comes to the pastor, it's because they're in trouble. There's something difficult and they want help. And there is, quite honestly, something very heavy and burdensome about being in that position. Because as I look out at you all, I see not only my friends, but I know your stories and I know your hurts and I know what is bringing you to the edge of of, uh, the edge of the day, really. There's a burden in that. And so whether it's just knowing people's stories and and their struggles or whether it's kind of having a sense of what might be around the corner because of wisdom, I think Solomon's words here for with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief is really true. 
It's really true. I like the other, the opposite virtue. I, I, I consider having a T-shirt made up that says this: "Ignorance is bliss." Anybody else? Sometimes the less you know, the happier you are. Um, I look at my kids and watch them frolic around the living room, and I think, "You don't know how good you have it." <laughs> oh, to go back. Um, Solomon's confession here at the beginning of this book is kind of his conclusion on life and all of its pursuits is that they all lead him to vaporous emptiness, something that can't be grasped or tallied up on a profit and loss statement at the end. All of these pursuits just kind of leave him grasping, and, and wisdom is one of those. I'll try to put it to you in another way, another picture. Uh, I don't know if any of you like Seinfeld episodes. I think uh, many of them are very, very funny. There's this one that comes to mind of Newman and Kramer on one of their, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it. They're in cahoots on something here. And they've noticed that on the top of the cans there's a redemptive value of 10 cents. And they're not paying that in their state. And so they figure if we can get all these cans together, we can drive them across the border and redeem them for 10 cents, we'll be rich. And so the show just becomes about them trying to figure this out. And Newman is so funny because he says, can't be done. I've already crunched the numbers. Can't be done. He's just confident. And, uh, and finally they sort of figure out a way to try to work around it, which of course doesn't pan out. Um, but the conclusion that Newman has come to, which is kind of the funny part of this, where he says uh, the numbers don't pan out. Once you cover your overhead, there's, nothing, there's no profit left in it. It's really the same conclusion that Solomon is coming to here about life and even about wisdom. Uh, When it's all said and done, it doesn't leave us with something on the balance sheet. It doesn't doesn't leave us with this particular prophet. And I think what he begins to recognize is, uh, and you'll see this hopefully more and more, is that his premise is faulty. In his experiments, the hypothesis he's realizing is not quite going to pan out. His question in chapter 1, verse 3, and then again here in chapter 2 is, what does a man gain? What, does, what do we gain from all of our toil? I think he begins to realize you can't expect that ultimate gain. That's faulty. Life isn't set up that way. If our endeavor is to master life by gain, by control, and to bend it to our will, and to try to get traction so that there's this leftover margin at the end, we'll be continually disappointed. And the fundamental problem with mankind, I think, is that we, we just choose not to accept this. Ian Proven said it this way. I think it's very well said. Wisdom is, a, is useful as an instrument for understanding the world. Yet what it mainly helps one to understand is just how impossible it is to control and to profit from the world as it has been created. And I think that's what Solomon arrives at with wisdom. And then it seems like he makes, there's kind of this transition and this pendulum shift here. Uh, almost as if he says, if, if being good and doing right doesn't guarantee a good return on life, if I can't count on that, then why bother? Let's just throw caution to the wind, and if righteousness fails to yield a profit, then why not gratify every appetite with feeling, without feeling any remorse? And go through life conscience-free, trying to wring out of my body and experience every possible pleasure that there is. And so then Solomon seems to make his own personal happiness the chief end of his next experiment. 
Experiment number one was wisdom, and it didn't pan out. Experiment number two is pleasures. But again, he concludes that pleasures don't last. He says, I thought in my heart, this is chapter 2, verse 1, I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. And I think his first conclusion is that folly doesn't figure. And it seems like his first attempt in the world of pleasure was to entertain himself, I guess is the word that I would use. He calls together the uh, the countryside's best comedians, whomever they were in the day. I don't think Jerry Seinfeld was available, but whomever they had, he got them together. The best entertainment that money could buy. And then he seems to uh, to take on drinking and to try that, maybe just enough to take the edge off. It seems that he didn't drink so much to get absolutely sloshed because he tells us that he all uh, my mind's still guiding me with wisdom. And I think ultimately what he's doing here is he's letting us know that, hey, I'm the guinea pig of my own experiment. And yet, at the same time, I'm analyzing how all of this is working. I'm analyzing the data of my own life's experiences. So as I do this, I'm watching to see its outcome here. And then, as, as he sees, these things are empty. Uh, and so he begins to experiment with the finer things in life. He's tried the lighter side of life, and now he seems to move on to the finer things in life. Look at verse 4. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. Does that not sound good right now? I was like, what, what are you upset about, Solomon? Let me tell, you know, paint you a picture of what's outside right now. Uh, that looks pretty good. But his conclusion here again was that these projects trying to create the finer things in life all around him, that ultimately they didn't satisfy. He tried to surround himself with beauty, but that end project, it didn't satisfy him. I took on a project here recently. Uh, For Christmas, uh, Amy asked me if I would consider making her a dining room table. Yikes! Uh, I'm not a woodworker. So this is an interesting question. And I said, well, what exactly did you have in mind? Because picnic table I could probably pull off, you know. And she said, actually, I was thinking of, you know, like an old farm table. And I thought, okay, all right, old farm table. That's going to be filled with nicks and dents and all kinds of mistakes. That's the nature of it. Maybe I can do that. So I took it on. I brought some pictures to show you. And, and, I, and it came out pretty good. It was pretty fun. Um, so this is... This is the picture of the end product, and I used, um, (laughs) you notice something, don't you? Uh, Yeah, you guys are in my dining room here. This is interesting. Welcome. Um, I have nothing for you to eat. This, the the top of the table here is made of ash. Um, It's it's about two inches thick, and then the the apron and the runner down here on the bottom, that's all ash, and um, then the legs are made out of uh, hickory. And I turned it so that you could see the heartwood on the outside. And it still has the band marks from the saw on the outside of the legs. And I tried to leave sort of the natural 
uh, aspects of the table on the side here, you can see this big scallop, right? That's just what was there. And so rather than hide that, we turned it out to expose it and, and try to highlight it and just bring out some of the natural beauty of the wood. Um, there are some aspects I'm really not happy with. If you look over here on the left-hand side, you notice there's a bit of a dip there, and the wood is not planed uh, to all uniform depth, so I'm trying to get a level top as best I can, but it doesn't always work. And in any case, it, it was a lot of fun, and uh, I'm pretty happy with it. This is the top, and you can see just the beauty of the ash, and, and again, just that the, the natural aspects of it are kind of left there, and here's a picture of the legs, uh, maybe. There they are. You can see that heartwood on the outside. And, um, and down here at the bottom, you can't quite tell, but right here, if you can see, there's a brace that goes across. I had to notch this hickory, which was a task, and, uh, and kind of nest this piece of ash in here that goes across to the other lake. And it was really a fun project. I loved it. I loved being in my garage and being covered in dust, and I loved the smell of the wood and trying to figure out how in the world am I going to get this notch here in this wood? How am I going to, how am I going to figure all of that out? And, and as I said, the end product, in the end, I have mixed feelings about it. There's aspects of it that I really like. But I also left a couple gouges in it with the, uh, with the belt sander, and I didn't see them until I finished it. I'm not real happy with those. I like the natural contours that are there, but there's some disappointment with it. You know, and in the end, ultimately... I'm sad to say, but it's only a matter of time. As long as this is going to last for our family, and it will last a long time. But in the end, ultimately, this is going to be firewood for somebody else. Some point down the line. That's the truth of the matter. Um, as, much, as much effort went, went into it, it's temporary. And, and it will not last. Um, Solomon came to the same conclusion about some of his products. Uh, you know what was the, the most enjoyable thing about this? There were two aspects of it. One was the process of building and, and just doing it. And the second is what happens around it, that I get to gather with my family for a meal. And that over the holidays when people came up from, our family came up from Washington State, we played games and we could all get around this table. The enjoyable part of it was what it facilitated, but not what it is. It facilitated some enjoyable work for me and meaningful relationships around it with our family. Solomon concludes that the products, these projects that he undertook, ultimately in and of themselves were not satisfying. The finer things in life failed to produce the lasting gain. And so then he kind of he continues on and he begins his continues his experiment by accumulating possessions. That seems to be the next thing. Look at verse seven. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. I became great. That doesn't say very much of us, by the way. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. Again, I continued to analyze and look at the effect. 
I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. If you're the kind of person that marks in your Bible, I would encourage you to put a little star next to verse 10. Because for the first time he says, here is something enjoyable. And I want to come back to that later. But up to this point, he just continues to talk about the emptiness of it all. But here he says, my heart took delight in something. But ultimately his conclusions are that these possessions did not pay off. They didn't leave him with a sense of, of balance at the end of the day. Andrew, I can't seem to get this one to click again here. I don't know. I'll leave it up to you. I was curious about some of the hard numbers here, so I went to First Kings to kind of look at Solomon's gold portfolio. And uh, in First Kings, it tells us that he received 666 talents per year. And that's, that's a, a measurement it, that is the equivalent of 23 metric tons of gold per year. Well, that really got my curiosity up, so I started doing some math, which could be wrong. But uh, as near as I can figure, um, one metric ton has 32,667 troy ounces of gold in it, which at today's prices of, conservatively, $1,600 per ounce of gold, uh, the answer I came to was $1.2 billion a year. And that's just his gold portfolio. That's not the silver. That's not all the other things, and it's not the total net worth. And 1 Kings 11 also tells us the sad statistics of Solomon's harem. In addition to 700 wives, he had 300 concubines. This man surrounded himself with every pleasure or whatever, ple- whatever he thought would bring him pleasure and spared himself nothing. In this experiment, he brought all of these possessions and things to himself. And all of this brings me to a quote by Bernard of Clairvaux. From the best bliss the world imparts, we turn again unfilled to thee. That is what Solomon found. That ultimately, these things do not bring us satisfaction. They do not bring a profit, a gain, or a balance when it's all said and done. And so in these next few verses here, verses 11 through 23, he kind of gives us a summation of his disappointment in all these things. So I'll read these together, and then we'll look at his conclusion. Verse 11, Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, the chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom, and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise man has eyes in his head, while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this too is meaningless. For the wise man, like the fool, will not be long remembered. In days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. So I hated life, because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, the chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun, because I must leave them to one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. 
Yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. And this too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving for which he labors under the sun? All his, all his days his work is pain and grief. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is meaningless. And so Solomon, in the end part of these verses here, in verse 22, he, he kind of returns to his, his question at the beginning. What does a man gain for his toil? He says it again here. What does a man get for all of the toil? Continuing to look at what can I put on this balance sheet of life? What will be the margin and the profit and the gain and the return when it's all said and done? And I think the conclusion that he comes to, or one of them as we'll see, is this. That life is not a for-profit enterprise. The title of your message this morning is non-profit. In the business world we have this distinction between for-profit companies and non-profit companies. They're two totally different animals, aren't they? And I think Solomon is coming to the conclusion that life isn't designed for profit. We're not looking for this margin for our earthly existence here at the, when it's all said and done. That's not the way God has made it. But I do think he shows us uh, something very interesting here in verses 10 and 11. He says, My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. And I think he begins to draw a distinction here. He almost stumbles upon something in his experimentation process. And, and I think what he begins to draw a distinction is between the end product and the process. And I think he begins to tell us that I found enjoyment and pleasure in the process of my toil, in the doing, in the life of itself, in the toil itself. I found some enjoyment in that. The end product, looking for this margin and this gain at the end, didn't satisfy because all I can see is that that's fleeting. But there was some enjoyment of the process. And I'm, I'm going to start calling this Lego theology. You familiar with Legos? You guys had a box as a kid? I had a ton of them. I think my mom was just trying to keep me quiet and off in the corner. Here, here, here's some toys. Play with those and keep out of my hair. The real enjoyment of Legos is not what you built or what you have built in the end, is it? It's the process. You snap a few pieces together. Oh, that was fun. And you can begin to dream and conceive of what you might build. And the fun of it is in, in the doing and the building, not the end product. And I want to be careful here. I'm, I'm not just trying to lead us to existential theology or philosophy. Okay, that, That's not the ultimate answer, but it's where we are in the discussion. And I think there's some overlap. But what I think is interesting is that when we go back to the garden and we consider the life that God gave Adam, there's some very interesting similarities here. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it. We tend to think of work as a result of the curse, don't we? And that's not the case. The Bible tells us that no, meaningful work, enjoyable work, was something that God gave Adam in the garden at the beginning. And I think it was probably very enjoyable for Adam. 
Um, he says, work it and take care of it. And then the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat of from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Again, food. We go on to verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And the closing words of that chapter as it describes uh, that relationship between husband and wife, he says that they were naked and they had no shame. These were the things that God knit into the created world and gave to Adam for a meaningful and enjoyable life. He gave him enjoyable work to do, good food to eat, and companionship with another and with God himself. That's the created world as God has made it. And I think the problem that we have here is that the nature of life isn't designed to achieve and accomplish and accumulate, but rather to enjoy these things as the gift of God, rather than trying to amass them, stockpile them, store them, and control our existence with them. And that's where I think we get it wrong. To say it another way, I think the experience of life that God has given to us is not a for-profit enterprise, but non-profit. And that's the conclusion that I think he comes to at the end here. Accept life as it is. Verse 24, A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And so here we see the first of what are actually six conclusions in the book of Ecclesiastes. And all of them say something very similar. Enjoying life is a gift of God. Enjoying the things that God has given us to do, but not placing our hope in them and not looking for a profit or a gain outside of them. He's not saying that eating and drinking and laboring bring us ultimate happiness, but he is saying in contrast that we're not to see them we're not to see the rest of our existence as storing and amassing uh, this margin and this this pleasure. Um, I want to go back to this this table uh, that I built again. Once again, that table, the end product, I have mixed feelings about what it ultimately is. It's temporary. It's got errors and flaws. It's not going to last forever. But the process of building it and what happens around it, that's the real enjoyment of it. And I think life is very similar in that way. And that's what Solomon's experiments have led him to discover. Let me ask you one last question. Is the book of Ecclesiastes negative? Is it a downer? Well, I hopefully, ultimately, I, think, I hope you won't conclude that. I think, in fact, I don't know if you knew this or not, but Ecclesiastes' nickname is the Philippians of the Old Testament. Philippians being a book of joy. And the reason why is because we're going to find that frequently throughout the book, Solomon says, I command the enjoyment of life. We just have to make sure we don't run down all of the dead ends that he found in his experimenting. He's going to show us where life is found. Let's pray. 
Well, Lord, this morning it's almost like we've looked at somebody's lab notes after they're experimenting and we're finding all of the failed experiments. And while that doesn't always bring us a lot of happiness, it should bring us some comfort because we know which lanes will not be satisfying. Lord, we look to you for our satisfaction. We look to a life that is beyond just life on the human plane. We look to a relationship with a God who is transcendent, and in that we find meaning and joy. Thank you for sending your Son who allows that to be possible. May we continue to learn from this book, this honest look at life under the sun. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.